Welcome to the Lightshine Church Podcast. I'm Rob Douglas, the organizing pastor of Lightshine Church, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Shay, so much. Wonderful, as always. Um, It's good to be back with you. Uh, Yeah, so let's get into it. we are still in Second Corinthians today, and today Paul has somewhat of a word to say with the church. Um, it's not out of judgment, but it is a bit of a correction, so we'll be listening to Paul's word correcting the church. But before that, I want to talk about uh, how our culture at large, um, I would say it's super easy for a lot of people to critique the church right? I mean, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit when it comes to the church at large. I'm recently watching this show on HBO called The Righteous Gemstones. I don't know if you heard it, but it's basically a spoof on televangelist family that gets into a lot of trouble, right? There's celebrity pastors who wear $1,000 shoes on stage, um, private jets, big houses. There's sexual scandals, financial scandals, And then if you look at the historical picture globally at the church, and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there, right? We have genocide, slavery, uh, war, crusades, the list can go on and on. It's kind of easy to critique the church, sadly. Um, And for me personally, in my journey, when I started off as a Christian, um, I I went from the streets into a megachurch. I went from the streets into this shiny, bright scene. and I noticed pretty quick that these churches were, were really good at copying um, successful organization and leadership skills and models in order to grow, 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 right? And there's a lot of good in, in that, um, but there's a lot of bad in that, right? I mean, you can really get lost in the numbers, Um, I remember when I became a youth pastor after moving and navigating through that style of church, um, I would always get asked, how many kids do you have in your youth ministry? And that question drove me nuts. Parents would ask me. The lead pastor would ask me often. The, The elders would ask me often. Even the students would ask me. And sadly, what happened was I begin to get wrapped up in that scene, right? And so I would spend hours upon hours upon hours trying to come up with the sharpest, wittiest, funniest sermons to attract more students. And I spent hours on events and even more time trying to make my my youth room look hip and cool for the kids. Um, Sure, like I I love students. I still love students um, a ton. And I love Jesus. And and it's important to have some sort of order and and relevance. However, it's so easy to get caught up in the promotion side of ministry, or even the promotion of yourself. And when that happens, you begin to miss the point of the gospel entirely. And this, I think, is what Paul is getting at here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we're going to be jumping into that in a sec to see what he has to say. But before uh, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Lightshine Church and the way that you are using this community to navigate through a dark time. 
um, to be people who are truly striving um, to follow after you in a really difficult time and place and space. So we thank you for your guidance. We thank you that you have called faithful leaders to um, care for and lead Lightshine Church and that you've created um, a, a community of people who love you and love others really well. So may you open up our hearts and minds to your word this morning so that we may continue to navigate this world, which seems pretty chaotic today, which more than ever needs people who are non-anxious and determined to love well in a time of uncertainty. So we thank you in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So let's get into it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, and we do not lose heart. So I want to stop there. I don't usually do this. I love how Paul starts with mercy. That ministry comes out of mercy. It's not judgment. It's not a law that we have to do this work, but it's mercy. It's God's mercy that we, are, that we don't lose heart and we continue this work in the world. And then he continues, he says, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed to our, in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death, for, to death for Jesus' sake, so that this life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The word of the Lord. So Paul is letting the Corinthians know that the gospel is best revealed through them in vulnerability and in honesty, that there is no need for tricks. There's no need for flashy stuff or fog machines and lasers. There's no need for big shows. There is no need for all that because the gospel will live on no matter what, even, even in death. And what's darker than death? Nothing. The gospel lives on. Um, I love N.T. Wright. He's a scholar. He's great. I'm sure most of you guys know about him, but he has this commentary it's called a commentary for everyone. So it's for like anyone to read, not just scholars and pastors is why I use it for most of my work because it's easy. Um, and, and he uses a simple but great illustration to paint this picture for us. He says this, 
one day he was invited to go to this organization to meet the head of the organization. And he's going to meet them. He's met them a while ago. So he kind of remembers what they look like, kind of doesn't. But he says upon arriving to the office, he's greeted at the front door by this assistant who takes him up two flights of stairs to an office. And like I said, it's been a while since he met this woman who is the head of the organization. So he wasn't sure he was going to recognize her. As, he, as they come through the door, a very well-dressed woman of about the, the right age, as that person he remembers he met one time ago, walks towards them, smiling with her hand outstretched. And he thought to himself, well, maybe my memory isn't, isn't that bad. So he confidently shakes her hand and says, how very good it is to see you again, right? And, and then, of course, she looks at him kind of strangely, turns around, walks to the back of the office, knocks on a door, and opens the door, and guess what? Guess who's in that room? That's right. The woman he actually came to meet. He had mistaken the secretary for the woman he came to meet, for the boss. So he instantly recognizes her and then felt how we would probably all feel in that situation, pretty foolish. And he had, like I said, mistaken the personal assistant for the head of this large organization. So embarrassing. Um, see, even scholars do embarrassing things. Um, but this is what Paul is getting at here. This is what he's getting at. He's, he is concerned that the Corinthians, this church, have, have been confusing him, Paul, for the head of the organization, right? That they are regarding Paul as the head of Christianity. But he's like, no, I'm not. I'm simply a servant. I'm simply a secretary. I'm simply just an assistant. He is just someone who introduces people to the top guy, right? He's one of the Messiah's office staff. Verse 5 says it clearly. It says, we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus, the Messiah, as Lord. My missions professor at Fuller Seminary um, used to always say, our job is a lot easier than we make it. He said, we simply just introduce people to Jesus who is alive. We have the human tendency, tendency to overcomplicate things because like, like I did, we simply forget we're just staff. That the gospel is not about building fancy, complicated organization. The church isn't about building these beautiful, crazy entertainment machines or, 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 or whatever. Our job is to make Jesus known and then step out of the way to make sure we don't get in the limelight. And light is key here, as we see it played out in this text. But also, remember Paul's conversion story, right? When he was on the road to Damascus, he had this encounter with a bright light that blinded him. A light that flashed down from heaven in which he then saw the risen Jesus in all of his glory. And his life was never the same again. He was transformed by this light. Not just by the experience, 
but by what that experience or by what that light meant. He realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that he was the light of the world, that he was the one who was actually fulfilling all of God's purposes, God's actual son, God's image and God's light that from the very beginning was restoring order out of chaos. And Paul found himself as an agent now, as an assistant of this new order, this new creation. The light that blinded him on Damascus, the light that suddenly would shine in people's hearts when he preached the gospel was the light at the beginning, the very beginning of creation of the world. Let there be light. God said. So as we know in Hebrew, darkness is a metaphor, a symbol of chaos and disorder, and light represents order. So it was this light that restored order in the cosmos, and light that restored order to Paul, who at the time was murdering Christians. And it was light that has restored you and restored me. And in Paul's case, this light just did its thing without someone else doing it. There was no one there when Paul had his conversion. And in my case, I had a similar experience. There was no one there for me when I encountered this. I was freshly off the streets from heroin addiction in a rehab alone right when I had a spiritual experience where emotionally, physically, and mentally I felt restored. My disorder, the, the disorder was restored to order. I felt healed. I felt order in my disorder. And the interesting thing was no one was there, right? No one preached the gospel to introduce me to Jesus. And this is rare, but it is possible. It just happens like it sometimes does. And I'm not saying people aren't important. Obviously, people are extremely important. The scriptures say over and over again that you are God's beloved. And it was my mom who helped me get out or get to rehab where that experience took, took place. The staff that created a space where I could heal, even though the staff was later found out to be trading drugs for certain favors from clientele. But regardless, those people helped pave the way. But none of those people, none of those people had the power or the capacity to transform my life like God did in that rehab room at 3 a.m. And this is what Paul is getting at here in this text. God doesn't need us, but he wants us because he loves us. And he chooses us to be his plan A, and there is no plan B. And that's good news because it takes away the weight that we can place on our shoulders, right? But we are called to simply introduce people to the light and then let that light do its thing. We don't need to use tricks or rhetoric or buy fancy shoes to wear or wear the right clothes or whatever we think might work to advance the gospel, to make it more relevant. We simply need to speak it out and live it out openly and with courage. And then the light will continue to do its thing. Because for Paul, this God is not a foreign God, right? For Paul, the scriptures reveal that God is the one true God that created all that was there in the very beginning. So this news shouldn't be foreign to people. It, it, it should click for every human being because everyone that has a conscience to which this message will make appeal. 
And it's kind of like the message from an almost forgotten relative that sparks or reawakens memories from the past. But as Paul states, not everyone receives this message because there is some sort of darkness or dark force that continues to oppose the light that tragically blinds people from the truth of the light. And of course, as we know, light has a very, very, very successful way, though, of driving out darkness in the end. So as Paul says, we are like pots, and the news of the gospel is like a treasure in these pots. We are vulnerable, but we are carrying treasure. And all we do is offer treasure to others without judgment, without shame, or without guilt. Again, when I was a youth pastor um, in a pretty conservative evangelical church, I sometimes had students, probably like five or six students throughout the five years I was at this church, but there was like one a year that would always come to me with this like angry passion, like an angry passion, this fire, uh, this intense spirit for wanting to spread the gospel at all costs, right? And somehow, somewhere, they picked up this idea, whether it was directly or indirectly, that they carried this responsibility of saving the world by proclaiming the gospel at all costs. And spreading the gospel is good, right? Living it out is good. But placing the weight and responsibility of saving the world is really not healthy, especially for a teenager who's already carrying a lot of stuff on their shoulders. It puts way too much pressure on one person. And this, this part, this is part of what Paul is teaching us here. Again, God doesn't need us. He wants us. And I love how Paul starts and ends this section with grace and mercy. There is no law given that we have to proclaim the gospel. But it's, it's a tasting and a seeing and being exposed to his mercy, to his grace, that we want to participate in God's new creation here on earth. It's out of a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude that Paul and the church even go to the lengths of being persecuted to spread this news. Otherwise, Paul knows it won't last because judgment is a bad motivator, but love, love sustains. Guilt and shame and judgment only lead to us coming with coming up with deception and deceitful ways, but mercy inspires love and sustains. So we, as the message carrier around with this treasure in us, but Paul also says there's death in us so that there can be life in you. There's this reality that we carry the death of Christ in us, but also the resurrection. This paradox is obviously a mystery, um, and well above my pay grade, but, but I'd like to uh, kind of talk about it for a little bit because it's obviously important to Paul. But the only thing I can come up with is that Paul truly believes that the gospel is not just rhetoric. It's not just ideology, that it is somehow embodied in him, that it's not just a belief system. It's, it's somehow in, he's intended to live this out with his very own body. So as the gospel is both the death and resurrection of Jesus in his body, then it is so for us who follow him. The gospel itself is living out in our own being, 
in the world. We carry both the deadness of Jesus in us so that in order for Jesus' life to be revealed through us too. And Paul has been persecuted, right? Literally persecuted. So he's experienced death. But I'm guessing most of us have never been persecuted, nor will we ever be persecuted, right? Unless you count your um, uh, speakers going out before a Zoom meeting like mine did this morning, persecution. I don't know. That's not persecution. But what Paul, Paul is saying is, is that the gospel is not a flashy, showy, performance-driven thing, right? It's not. It's grim. It's the dirt under your fingernails, and, and it's embodied even in you and even in me and even in death. It goes to the lengths of even death. The gospel does not leave the problems of suffering out of it. It faces them straight on with the cross. And as followers, we are called to face hard, difficult, and painful stuff head on as well. And the promise is, is that Christ, that, it, that in Paul, that, that is in you, and it's in me, that we will reveal the light to the darkness. Death and life, light and darkness. And it ensures that those who are suffering have not been forsaken by God. But, but it may, at least in Paul's eyes, mean that maybe you're actually living in line with the gospel. And Paul wants to ensure that we don't mistake the assistant for the boss. Right? So, we all have this treasure in clay jars, which is a metaphor for our human vulnerability. So that it can be clear that all this excess of power belongs to God and does not belong to us. And indeed, it takes shape in our paradoxical experience of being afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And it becomes manifested in our bodies as we give ourselves up to death for Jesus' sake, as we die to the distorted patterns that harm us and others and take on the suffering that comes from the embodied God's mercy and consolation amid forces that contradict it. This is how the life of Jesus becomes manifest in our bodies. This is how death in us becomes life for the sake of the world. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is the gospel, the gospel will move on. The gospel doesn't need showy performances and it all is rooted in God's mercy and grace. And we participate it, participate in it out of a heart of thankfulness.